Jeff, you are such a natural. Jeff doesn't work here. He doesn't spend all day, all week, I should say, around us and knowing what's going on here at Faith and everything. We pretty much said, could you do announcements for us since you're doing the men's recap and here's what we need you to say. And he's just really gifted. So I appreciate you, Jeff. And uh, I'm watching that video. Of course, I was there. I lived it. But when I see it on screen, I'm just, and with Doug and how he puts it all together and stuff. And I, I got to tell you, just as we get into our message, our topic this morning, there's a part of me that, that just flares up inside when I see what is really happening behind the scenes or below the surface. And, and I admit we've got to do a better job communicating with our people about what the Lord is doing and what he's calling us to and all that. We're working on that. But, but I'm around 50 guys that weekend and I'm saying, Lord, you are doing an incredible thing at faith. And all that we've been praying towards and all that we've been moving towards and just seeing leadership develop and what, what, uh, Jeff was able to say about the guys that stepped up and led our men. And to be honest with you, I pretty much get to spend the whole weekend in an Adirondack chair watching everyone else just minister. And, and, and of course, I, there's things I get to do to connect, but, um, they do all the ministry and all the prep and all the, because there is a transition happening here that has been painful for us for the last couple of years that is, is birthing, if you will, something incredibly strong and setting us up in a very compelling way for the future. I intended to say none of those things until I saw that video. And I was like, I got to say this. So thank you for letting me get that out there a little bit. And and it's not just a man thing. This is happening on the ladies side as well. And so I'm just not as privy to that because they don't let me in. So, but anyway, I'm sure if we get to see the video of those kinds of things, we'd see the same thing. It is very challenging. We, we are, are trying to forge a vision and trying to anchor on something that the rest of the world has said, no, you got to wait. The rest of the world is saying, let's put everything on pause and all of our norms, all of our rhythms, all of our our anchors for life to know if we're progressing, to know if we're falling backwards, any of those things. It's all been kind of removed from us. And so we've had to develop new rhythms. And most of those rhythms that we've developed, we don't really like. And so it's challenging to cast vision for the people of God because we live in a real world and that real world has decided to go all wonky on us. And as it's going wonky and we're going, okay, Lord, what's your call? What's your vision for us? What are we supposed to be responding to? It's difficult to anchor in. And then the pastor comes along and says, submit and hang on and then submit some more and keep hanging on. And and by the way, you should think about submitting. And it's over and over and over again. And I was thinking if I was in the bumper sticker business, I would give one out to everybody in the church that says, Christians, Hang on, we won't be losers forever. Real inspiring, right? Isn't that so compelling? They don't write books for these kinds of things. They don't, they don't have conferences for pastors. This is how to cast a really sharp vision in a time of pause and hang up and all those sorts of things. So I've been feeling that same burden and that same itch and that same frustration with the fact of where are our wins? What are we supposed to say? We did this or we accomplished this. Where are those wins? Lord, why is it so far from us? Why does it elude us? 
I went back and revisited some things that we said in January and February, back when I was first given the opportunity to be the lead pastor here at Faith and feeling the responsibility of casting for the congregation, for the body at large, what are we going to do together? I was very encouraged to go back and see some of these things. And of course, it's not a a total revisit for me. We've been anchoring most of what we've been doing back in these statements. But it was exciting for me to be able to finally have an opportunity to bring it back up. And I can't believe it's already seven months ago. Um, But nevertheless, this is what we talked about at the end of January and February as we were totally oblivious to this COVID thing would ever come our way. We said that as a church together, we will practice a relevant gospel. A relevant gospel is a gospel that is appropriate to the current time that we find ourselves in. Regardless of what it used to look like, regardless regardless of what it's going to look like, which we don't know, what does the gospel say to us in our current time? And we had given the warning that our, our culture and our doctrine need to be linked. If we say that we believe the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, which transforms everything that followers of Jesus Christ are to do, that we have to adhere to an understanding of what the scripture actually teaches and let it inform our culture as a body of believers. If we have gospel doctrine, which is we know all the right things to say from the scriptures and we believe it, we can quote it, but it doesn't infect our culture, then we're going to be what the church has been labeled for so long, a bunch of hypocrites, right? We know what the right thing to do is, we just don't really do it. So that's tough. Or if we have this idea of a gospel culture, and a lot of the times that looks like, oh, you know, shucks, Jesus' blood covers it all. Let's not hold any high standard. Let's not hold anybody accountable. Let's not worry too much about uh, shaping ourselves, improving ourselves, and and passionately allowing the Lord Jesus to transform us. We we just let that go by the wayside because Jesus got it all covered. If we have a gospel culture with no gospel doctrine, we are creating a fragile church. A lot of times I refer to uh, when when you see a church that's growing, 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 and you're like, or any organization or anything, it's growing, growing, growing. If you don't know if it's true growth or if it's just swelling, touch it. If it's tender when you touch it, I got a pain doctor in the room, he can back me up. If it's tender when you touch it, that's not healthy growth. There's something wrong. Now, if we have a gospel culture and married to a gospel doctrine, that's when the power of the gospel shines through. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. So we made a promise that leadership would strive towards gospel-centered direction. And then the challenge to the church in response was that the church would strive towards gospel-centered application. So all of that is how we summed up, not knowing exactly how we would do it, but it was the start to our journey. This wasn't a vision that said, over the next 12 months, we're going to. It was, how do we change the tone of the ministry? How do we inform all the things that we do out of these underlying or undergirding principles? So we were going to practice a relevant gospel. We were also going to strive to build a relational community. 
The church we defined as a household, as a family, as a how we interact with one another, even through our disagreements and our differences and how do we support one another in in our victories. That's what it meant to have a household of faith, a living expression of a living God, we said, is what the church is. That we were to demonstrate the life of who God is by the way we conduct ourselves. And we also said that the church had the responsibility to be a pillar and a buttress of truth. That we would uphold truth and support it and live by it at all costs. We had found this term that uh, somebody coined the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism, what we would refer to as MTD and how the Christianity is so widely infected by MTD. What does moralistic therapeutic deism stand for? It's, it's kind of this general, like, I like God and he's, he's available to me, but I need to be able to control when I use him, when I don't, how it all makes sense. And if I need him, he's there. God watches over human life on earth. He wants us to be good and nice to people. That the goal of life is to be happy and feel good about me. And so much of our worship, so much of our church engagement is about the experience of it, what I get out of it. God's presence only needs uh, is only needed when I can't solve my own particular issue. Then I call on him, pull him down. And then, of course, good people go to heaven. And that this is creeping through Christianity at large. And, and are we going to do our part to combat that, to not give in to that wishy-washy faith? So we laid out some promises that we would reestablish shepherding because so much rises and falls on good leadership. And so we would uh, 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 situate ourselves to be able to engage with our members, which is a much slower process than I thought it would be. Uh, We would add to our elder team by incorporating some new elders and training, which has been incredible. And these guys, we, I think, invited seven new guys to the table, which I don't think is in any chapter of any leadership book. So we'll see if that was recommended or not. But so far, these guys have all made a tremendous impact and are are encouraging to us in all of their wisdom, skills, and expertise they bring to the table. We said that we would strengthen the meaning of membership because admittedly, we hadn't done that a lot at Faith where there wasn't anything that was really, what is the cell? What is the purpose? Why would I belong to this? It was difficult for us to land the plane on that. So we would anchor that in commitment. We commit to you. You commit to this body. We do this thing together. We would revitalize connect groups and we brought on Pastor Tom to help us with that. And as he's getting his his feet planted and his education set and trying to figure out how am I supposed to be a new pastor at a different church in a worldwide pandemic and all those kinds of things. I think he's doing a remarkable job setting us up for this. And that we would solidify discipleship truly as following and learning Christ. Those were the commitments that we made And I got to be honest with you, when I put out this phrase of build a relational community, I thought it would be a little bit easier. We, We imagined being able to have bigger gatherings off of Sunday morning, you know, get this concept that people were missing about fellowship and bring all this stuff back in and start to spend a little bit more money as a church just to be around one another and and to enjoy one another's company, to invite other people to the table. All of those things were things we were starting to talk about. And then the wonky world said, no, you can't do that. Not yet, at least. So we had to start figuring out how are we going to pursue community 
when we're told we can't gather. And then lastly, we said that we would engage in a rare mission. We will follow the rare orders of the gospel, which if you hear its call is completely countercultural to lay ourselves down, to get over ourselves in order to get behind Jesus Christ. It's a very rare set of orders that we would hear. But we said if we did that, we would start conquering rare territories. We would combat what goes on out in the normal world, which are these demographics of similarity. You think about our political and social isolations right now, and everyone's got their opinion. And if you're not with their opinion from the very first visible um, uh, outset of that, that you are alienated, you're, 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 just, you're just isolated from any of that. And so the gospel says that we are going to conquer rare territories by not giving in to the demographics of similarity. I want to be around the people I like. I want to be around the people that make it easy for me. I want to be around the people that vote like I vote, that, that either distance like I do or don't care about distancing like I do or any of those kinds of things. I'm more comfortable around people that get it. And that's what I'm going to settle for rather than seeing the world opportunistically. It's rare territory. And in doing so, we'd be relaying a rare message. We'd be telling people that there is forgiveness and hope available for all who will confess their sins and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what we said in uh, January, February. And I believe that we have moved in that direction, though painfully and slowly and tripping over ourselves and going through some some process with people and being for it, not being for it, not understanding where we're coming from or any of those kinds of things. It's part of how we do this thing as a body together and we are enduring well. Enter First Peter's message, the, the letter that we've been studying. And here we see that Peter is saying that a living hope is available for all who will humble themselves to follow Christ's example through his power. Peter's telling us to be willing to lose now in order to win later. To live peaceably in a chaotic and crooked world. And the passage that we're going to get to today, while packed with gospel doctrine, is tackling one of the most difficult to interpret passages in all the New Testament, to which I'm just very thrilled about. Hey, boy. I'm not going to solve all the mysteries today. In fact, no one's been able to solve all the intricacies and the mysteries of this passage. So what we're going to do instead is we're not going to be overly distracted by these mysteries because they aren't necessarily so critical to the main point of the passage that we should be to, uh, we should allow ourselves to get our eye off the ball. So instead, what I thought we would do is start with the main idea in order to protect us from getting distracted with some of the other cooler, controversial, debatable kinds of parts of this passage. So let's go to 1 Peter 3 together, and we're going to start at the end of our text, which is found in verse 22. And in, at the very, very end of 21, Peter says, who he's talking about here, he says, Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So we're going to see that the main thrust of this text is the ascending supremacy and glory of Jesus Christ. Peter is, is showing that it's building 
And it's building to the point that he arrives in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and all of these other quote-unquote authorities, powers, and everything are subjected to him, as the psalmist says, that as he comes to the right hand of God, that all of his enemies are under his feet. They're under his, as, as a footstool to him. So the, the cadence of this passage, what Peter is going to say to us from 18 to 22, is that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, was made alive in the spirit and has gone up to heaven. So let's get started back at the beginning in verse 18. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Now, the confounding truth of the good news of Jesus Christ is that real victory emerges from real loss. This passage focusing uh, once again, as Peter has done a couple of times already, is focusing for a moment on the fact that Jesus suffered and died. He suffered for our sins. There is a purpose to this. And this real victory is coming out of what Jesus really felt, what he really experienced, that he died a physical death for our sins. You see, Jesus was more than a martyr. He didn't just have a cause, walk down a road, and then somebody came and said, enough out of you, we're going to make you pay. And they capture him, subdue him, and take his life from him. He came with the purpose of laying his life down to carry our sins in his body. This is one of the essential and most fundamental elements of the gospel message. Jesus had a purpose beyond being a martyr. Passage also tells us, though, that he was our unfair substitution, completely unfair. He was righteous, perfect, right before God. No mistakes, no whatsoever. And he trades places with us who are close to perfect, though, right? Most of us pretty close, right? Not at all. It is completely unfair why a perfect savior, perfect God, a perfect son of God would come and trade places with the most imperfect. Yet this is what Peter is saying he did. He also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might accomplish something, that he might bring us to God. Jesus clears our path to the Father. There's a, a little bit of a technicality in this phrase that basically leads us to understand that it's, it's giving us audience before a great king. And when I saw that, my mind immediately went back to the Old Testament where Queen Esther, who of her no, uh, of, of none of her choosing was selected by a king to marry him because he picked her out most beautiful. I want her, this kind of thing. I need a new queen because I just off the last one. And so I want her to come in and I'm going to marry her and stuff. But there wasn't really a relationship there. There wasn't any real fellowship and stuff. And so at one point it became clear to Esther that she had a duty that perhaps as her, as her, as a cousin, uh, Mordecai says to her, um, perhaps you were put in this position, queen, for such a time as this, because our people are being persecuted by someone in the king's forces. And perhaps you have audience with the king to protect us. Maybe the Lord put you there, not of your own choosing, not of your own wishes, so that you could accomplish this. And what does Esther say in response? She says, I can't even go into his presence unannounced, un unsolicited, unrequested. Because if you go into the king's presence and he didn't invite you, he can kill you. 
a legitimate fear for a girl that who didn't want to be there, had no business being there, didn't aspire to be the queen of a land at some point in her life. And yet, and yet what she found was that because of the king's love for her, he welcomed her into her presence, into his presence. And, uh, and she was able to accomplish what the Lord had put there for her to do. And so we get this same image going on that Jesus brings us before the great king saying, no, you've been invited. It's okay. If you walk into the court of the great king, it won't cost you your life because it already cost me mine in order to get you here. This is what's uh, being uh, instructed of uh, for us in Hebrews 10, beginning verse 19. The writer says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to the true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus did all of this to be able to bring us into the court of the great king. He carried the marks on his body. He carried our sin in his body so that when he died for us, it would grant us access. And we come, as the writer of Hebrews says, with confidence and assurance of faith. So this real victory that we're starting to experience, this, this newness of life that we walk in came as a result of incredible loss on the part of Jesus. But real victory, as we're going to see now going forward, is beyond the world that you and I can see and smell and touch. That real victory lives for us somewhere else. And this is the part that Peter wants his children, or his, his listeners, his church to listen to because they're in despair, because they're having a difficult time anchoring a purpose. Where do we find our hope? How are we supposed to find connection in this world when all that we know is scattered and spread about? Remember, these are the people that Peter is writing to. So he points them back to something that Jesus did behind the scenes. In verse 18, uh, right at the end, the last phrase there is being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus was made alive. The world saw him die and he was gone for three days. All of Peter's previous references to Christ focused on his example of suffering and death. If we go back to chapter one, verses 18 and 19. Peter said, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In chapter 2, in just a handful of verses, 21, 23, 24, he gives all of these references to, to the things that Jesus did as our example to pay the price in his body. He says in, in 21, Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps so that we in where it's indicated to us that we should expect to suffer in our lives. Verse 23 tells us how when he suffered, he didn't threaten. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed as a quote from Isaiah. So Peter has focused on the, the death and the suffering of Jesus to his readers to help them to understand, okay, we shouldn't be surprised when this happens to us, but is this where it ends? 
Is this all we need to hear about is that Jesus suffered and died like a martyr? So go in and follow in his example, get him on a t-shirt, go march or something like that. Go and follow in his example because he was a good character, a good figure. No, he was more than that. You see, what what's indicated for us here is that Jesus died in one realm, in the realm of the flesh, and was made alive in another. This is what is meant by flesh versus spirit. Now, there's a little bit of translation going on here in, in uh, the word spirit that we just need to talk about. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. Um, but understand that in uh, the Greek language, there isn't really a capital letter system. So we don't have really the authority to be able to say some of your Bible translations may have spirit as a capital S. And that's because of the way that they're interpreting the passage of who or what they're talking about, what Peter's talking about. This is one of those instances where I'd love Peter to be able to come up and say, could you just clarify for us what you're talking about? This gets all weird in this little sentence here. But he can't, he won't, and he doesn't. So what we do is we look for a few clues, and I'm not going to present anything of, of, of the next few moments here in any kind of authoritative way as though all of my years of wisdom and reason have, have borne this out. But it's indicated to us here that what's really being compared is the difference between flesh and spirit. It isn't that Jesus died in his own flesh and it was the spirit of God that raised him. The reason why that's important is because we're trying to decipher what's going on between two realms. As the world watched him die in the flesh, what was going on? In the spirit. And that is a little bit closer uh, interpretation for what's happening in the rest of the context of the passage. That this isn't trying to get us to focus about in the spirit of God we're made alive, though that's true. This passage may be dealing more with the state of resurrection as opposed to the state of the flesh in which Jesus literally died in. And then Peter goes to bring us to these two kind of bit confusing, somewhat puzzling but very very important images in verses uh, 19 through 21 let's split them in half let's go over verses 19 and 20 peter says in which that is in the state of resurrection in the spirit realm in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison Ooh, this is getting fascinating i could start a youtube channel with some of these things he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, Noah's family, these faithful eight persons, were brought safely through water. So this is why we didn't just start walking through from beginning to end because we pause and we say, I want to know what that means. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Where were they? What did he say? How, what was the reaction? What's the response? And those things are important, and I think there are some answers, but again, this is thing, these are things that theologians have, are, have not settled on. So we're not going to try to today, uh, uh, other than the fact that it helps us a little bit with the main point. So we're referring here in, in Jesus' state of resurrection. And the word spirits here is something that the New Testament often uses for angels and demons, not deceased persons. Not the spirit of those who have died. It's more common in New Testament language. When we see spirits translated, it's referring to angelic or demonic beings, not humans. 
And it doesn't say that Jesus went and preached the gospel. In fact, the word proclaim is not the word that we get the gospel from. It's not evangelistic. What he went to do was announce. So that gives us a little bit of clarity here. He went for the purpose of announcing something to a group of spirits who are for some reason tied back to disobedience in Noah's day. So that's what's going on. And that's about all we can say emphatically. The rest is kind of speculation. The rest is um, really great material for YouTube, for somebody that wants to have a million hits and they want to have pictures of fire and cool things and take us back to the giants, if you will, back in Noah's time and all of these sorts of things. Here's my pastoral appeal to you, anybody listening as we talk about these things. Resist the temptation to make more out of what is minored in the scriptures. There isn't some secret code that unlocks all of the mystery. I believe that because I believe that God will reveal what he wants revealed when he wants to. And you and I can't jump ahead of him. Be leery of those who have claimed to crack the code. Be leery of those who have come to say, now, because I know this little secret and because you look at this and you got this number system, blah, 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 blah. Now we know we can build an entirely new theology off of that. Don't waste your time with that and miss the main point of the passage. And what is the main point that's going on here? That Jesus, in a state of resurrection, went and spiked the football in front of all of those that walked away from his and his father's plan to redeem mankind unto themselves. And they were uh, perhaps stirring up the whole population before the flood and getting a rebellion going and getting uh, uh, mankind to to uh, just dismiss all of God's commands to where God got to a point where he's like, I relent and I repent that I even created man to begin with. I'm going to set a flood of, send a flood of judgment and wipe out the entire population except for eight people in Noah's family. So when Jesus wins and the victory is secure, he goes and says, you picked the wrong side. You lose. We can't infer from this that he went and talked to those who had denied Christ and giving them a second chance and taking them out of hell and all these other kinds of things that some have speculated. There isn't enough meat there, enough uh, information there to, to lead us down that path. The other explanation that we just walked through fits very well for what's going on in the passage. So then Peter continues, he, he says, this is what's happening in the spirit realm. This is what Jesus did in that time. And then in verse 21, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this. And what is the this? He's talking about how Noah and his family were saved through the ark or by the ark through the floodwaters. So baptism, which corresponds to this, which is what baptism is. Baptism is a picture of something that God has done. He says, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Now, if you've been reading your Bible for some time, you've been going to church, that phrase jumps out and says, baptism saves you? What do we do with that? Fortunately, Peter doesn't let us linger on the confusion of that. Right in the next phrase, he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, baptism doesn't save you just because of what you're doing on the outside. You get dipped in the water and all you did was you got wet. But what baptism is, is this representation of the clear conscience that the Lord has given 
to you as a result of humbling yourself before him and receiving his payment for your sins. How are we anchoring this? He says we're anchoring this through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So baptism and all that Noah went through, baptism is pointing us back to the fact that, that the ark delivered that family to the other side of judgment, which is what the waters were the other side of judgment. And so now when we enter into the baptismal waters, we are proclaiming what Jesus has done in our heart. We're giving a picture to something bigger, just like the ark was a picture of God's deliverance, both literally and figuratively. In Romans 6, Paul tells us, verses 3 and 4, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his, there's the picture, into his death, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as uh, just as Christ was raised from the dead. That's why we lift folks out of the water, raised from the dead by the glory of the father. We, too, might walk in newness of life. So when Peter says baptism now saves you, he's saying it's not the practice or the picture that saves you. It's what's taken place in your hearts that has saved you. That's why Peter said back in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He didn't just simply say, be baptized for your forgiveness. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what is this picture? What is baptism to us? Peter said it was an appeal to God, which is this legal term he's throwing out. He says it's like a, a pledge or a commitment. He's, he's saying your baptism is your offer to the Lord to say, I know what I've been saved from and I'm in line. I'm in submission to you. I'm following you. You are my Lord and my King. And this act of getting wet before onlookers in this testimony, I want them to know who I follow. That's the appeal to God. Salvation meets us in our conscience as the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. What we're hearing in this gospel call is is a way to avoid the penalty that sin has issued on all of mankind. And that penalty is death and separation from God and an eternity in hell. And we respond with the commitment to follow him. This is because salvation has met us in our conscience. You know, you and I, when we came to Christ, we came because we were convicted of what our guilt would do to us for all of eternity. If we're just adding Jesus because something's missing, it's not dealing with this fact that my sin is, has separated me from a holy God. And when, when, when the Holy Spirit comes and says, now because of that sin, you are, you are destined to an eternity in hell away from God. All of us have said, if we've come to Christ, I don't want that. I would like to say that my, my initial uh, call to the Lord was because I just saw his glory and I was like, this Lord needs to be praised and I want to be a part of the choir that lifts his glories up and makes him famous. No, I wanted to avoid my punishment. So the Lord met me in my conscience and said, that's why I died. That's why I provided this for you because you do want to avoid that punishment. Trust me. But as I grow as a believer, now my motivation becomes, even though I'm still very, very thankful that that punishment has been removed from me, 
But my motivation as a believer becomes more about what I get to bring back to him, how I get to tell the world about his glory and make him famous. And so initially in my conscience, it's all about getting me out of trouble. That's why I need a savior, because that's what I think about the most. So you see how we'd be tempted to be distracted with some of the tricky nuances that's going on in the passage. But what it does is it brings us to verse 22 again. Why is Peter including all of this depth? Why is he including all of this weight to the passage? Because he wants listeners to understand that Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, have been subjected to him. Jesus submitted even unto his own death. Why? To accomplish all that we said was in his mission. To bring us to him, to pay for our sins, to conquer his enemies. His mission was the salvation of those who would call upon him. He ascended to the place of highest authority and now every other angel or quote-unquote authority or every other quote-unquote power now submits and surrenders to him. So so a scattered-out person back in Peter's time, the the uh, unjust authorities that you've got to submit to, the unruly husband that's, that's bearing down on you, the workmasters that are whipping your back, all of those entities will eventually surrender to the one who has won, the one who went to uh, all lengths to to be able to spike the football and said, you chose the wrong side. I only lost for the moment in order to win for the future. Our acts of submission in this life will all be rewarded when lesser authorities answer to Jesus on his throne. I got to be honest with you. Temporary wins feel really good. As a church, and this is not just about what faith is doing as a church. I'm much more concerned about what the heart and the disposition of our people are, what, what the sheep in the sheepfold are feeling out in the world today. This isn't about the organization of the church. This is really about what we're anchoring onto for hope just to get through. Temporary winds feel really, really good, and they seem to be eluding us a lot these days, don't they? I would like some. I would like a few things to break our way. I would like a few things that send us the message it's worth hanging on to. And we get them from time to time. But not as much as we're used to. But permanent wins last forever. Permanent wins endure. You and I are aiming for the long-term win. Let's not give in to what we need to feel in the moment to feel like the wheels aren't coming off this thing, whatever we call this thing, this life that we're living. The results are up to the Lord. The strength and the power are the Lord's. All other authorities answer to him. Whether they recognize it or not, they will. They will one day. Let's pray about these things. I'm going to ask you to stand and join me. Lord, I just want to thank you, God, for your faithfulness in your word. Lord, I just thank you, God, for giving us insight where things are a little murky, especially in the text that we were in today. I pray, Lord, that you would anchor your people in an assurance of their salvation first and foremost. Lord, may we know who we belong to. 
May we bank on that. May we trust, walk, and bask in the truth that you have us in your grasp. May everything else flow from that. May we be desiring to tell those who don't have this assurance that it's available to them as well. And may our conduct, may our decisions, may our attitudes, Lord, all reflect this glory and this trust that you've built within your people. We don't have to win now to show how good you are. We don't have to win now to show how big you are, Lord. That's all on you and you will win and you will demonstrate it. Thank you, God, for calling your people. Thank you for being so merciful to us, Lord. We know we don't deserve it. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving us. In Jesus' name, amen.